Hey everyone, welcome to the Journeyman Fire Podcast. I'm your host today, Grant Schwalbe. Uh, joining me today is going to be Ben Schultz from West Palm Beach Fire in Florida. Ben's just one of the best guys that I know. I've gotten the, the privilege to, to get to hang out and talk and teach with him. Uh, we met through a mutual friend in Brian Brush. Um, ben and Brian worked together at uh, West Metro in Colorado. And I got a text from Brian one day and he said, Hey, one of my best friends is moving down your way and wondered, uh, think you guys might get along and maybe you guys could do some teaching together. And, uh, so I got a hold of Ben and, uh, we met in Fort Lauderdale, um, worked together on an engine class and the, kind of the rest is history. Uh, Ben is just absolutely one of the smartest guys I know. He's fireground smart. He's book smart. Uh, I enjoy the conversations that I have with him. So today, uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation that Ben and I have. How you doing, Ben? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your, uh, how you got into the fire service? Uh, yeah, sure. I, um, so I grew up in New Jersey, uh, right next to Atlantic city. And, um, my neighbor growing up was a fireman uh, who actually probably just retired a, a handful of years ago. So probably had 40 something years on the job. And um, so I was that, I was that little kid, you know, who, who saw the fireman and looked up to the fireman. He was a real big part of my, my growing up um, in a lot of ways. And uh, not just for being a fireman, just overall, like one of the best people I, I knew um, or have known. And so he kind of set the bar for what I, you know, um, thought firemen were and, and uh, wanted to get back to the community and things like that. So I went to college. I did a bunch of other things um, over the years, but it was always sitting in the back of my mind that that's what I would do. And uh, when my, my wife and I moved out to California uh, in early 2000s is when I started going down this road. And, um, I got, so I got started in the fire service, uh, in the San Diego area, uh, worked out there for, uh, about a year and a half, two years, uh, before getting hired full-time career by West Metro in Colorado. Uh, and I spent <clears throat> about 11 years there and then about four years ago came to West Palm. And, uh, so I've, I've seen, uh, rural and urban and suburban and, kind of mid-sized, small-sized departments and uh, from wildland to tech rescue and, and just uh, structure firefighting and EMS all the way um, at all those departments. So been a pretty, uh, been, a, been a career with a lot of variety, which has been a lot of fun. So we, got to, we get to teach a little bit together uh, around Florida and at FDIC and big into the search culture and everything. You're doing a class right now that is called Every Second Counts. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that and, and how it um, ties in with the search culture and everything. So Every Second Counts uh, came about, let's say I started, uh, the first time I got to present it was a couple years ago uh, at the Mile High Conference. Uh, Cody McGinnis was, was nice enough and, and the rest of the guys had put on that conference, which is outstanding. Uh, we're nice enough to, to ask me to, uh, be one of the speakers. And I had this, I had notes and bits and pieces of this class kind of floating around in my mind for probably a couple of years. And that was finally the, the platform to put it together. And, um, and really, I mean, they, the, 
the essence of the class is um, there's a lot of things we can't control, um, but the things that we can control, we got to own 100% and, and start saving time in every aspect of, of what we do. And because there's so much that we, we can't account for. There's so many variables we can't account for. Uh, I can't account for the, the comorbidities of, of the victims we find or if their door was open or not, um, how close they are to the fire, all that stuff. But I, I can take a lot of steps towards uh, reducing the amount of time it takes from the alarm coming in to us locating and removing that victim, which is really when their, their chances of survival uh, begin. So, um, so anyway, I had, I had this chance to put the class together, uh, and, uh, it's so far, it's been received well. It's uh, got to do it at, uh, Portland firemanship conference after that, and then some smaller venues as well. And, um, it seems to be something, uh, people can identify with. So, uh, for me, I, my personal background with it came from, uh, actually predominantly, uh, mountaineering and climbing. I had a, uh, been climbing for a lot of years since college, uh, did it a little bit as a guide. And um, I got turned on to this idea. There's kind of two schools of thought with, with mountain climbing, um, kind of expedition climbing and, and alpine climbing. Without getting into all the details, alpine climbing is based on the idea of light and fast. So the, the faster I get up to the summit and get back down, the less time I spend on the mountain, which means the less time I'm exposed to the dangers of, of the environment. And so I kind of take that same approach to what I do. Uh, the less time we're in the ideal age uh, is better for us, and the less time there and obviously exposed to heat, fire, or heat and, and smoke, uh, better it is for the victims. So um, instead of looking at it like, uh, us versus them, you know, it, it seems like we're in such a kind of divisive, uh, polarized world these days in, in everything um, that you always have to pick a side. And that's kind of bled into the fire service of uh, we come first or they come first or whatever. Well, my opinion is we have the same problem and it's, it's time. It's how long we're in the ideal age. Um, and if we have the same problem, we can have the same solution through speed and so uh so that's kind of the basis for the class and um hopefully it continues and guys want to keep hearing it and if they don't then that's okay you know i'll go back to just hanging out with my family on my days off <laughs> so you came down to our uh, southwest florida firefighter symposium and presented this class and you know as much as we talk and everything i was, I was blown away by the concepts um as were all the guys that especially with my crew that, that heard it. I can tell you when you left, uh, we changed a couple things. We really, and I've always focused on mask up times and things like that, but we really made it a point to, to speed up and work on mask up times. And, and the big thing was out the door times. And you know, uh, every firehouse in the country, guys are busting each other over trying to get to the rig if it's a working fire. We took it kind of a step further and we said, you know, we're, we go on lift assists, we go on fire alarms, we go on medicals uh, as much as we may or may not like those. But if we can use every opportunity that the belt drops to work on that speed and get out the door fast. And I'll tell you, it's completely changed the culture within our, 
within our crew. Um, we kind of started a thing that said last one to the rig has to do the report. Uh, we've also talked about, Hey, the guys in the back, just get in the back. We were fortunate enough to have uh, big tall cabs. I said, just get your gear on in the back. Um, that way you're not getting it on, on the ground and then getting into the rig. By the time we move, they're geared up and they're in their seatbelts and whatnot. My engineer, I told him, I'm like, Hey dude, you don't need your gear on initially. You need to know where we're going. You need to have that rig fired up because if we've got low air or anything going on, you can overcome that. And as the officer, uh, I gear up and I gear up really quick. And kind of the, the rule is when my door shuts, the air brake goes off and we pull out and it's really, it's really cool to see how that, just you coming down and talking to us about that. And it's changed the mindset, which is translated to, I feel like we're out the door quick all the time. Um, talk a little bit about the things you can do on every call. There's so much stuff that we can't control on a call and we can't speed up, but speeding up those things that are consistent on every single call. Yeah. So I, and I love your example. Like uh, one, one thing that I really like about, this class is, um, is it, I, I'm a, I'm just a firefighter, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not at a big admin level. I'm not a battalion chief. Um, so I have to approach things that, um, at a level that I can have some impact on them. So, um, you know, going to like FDIC and, and some of the other classes, when uh, other, other conferences, when I was younger, I would see some of these really great ideas uh but they would require like massive amounts of change uh across the board and and i would leave and be like man that's great how do i get that to happen at my department whereas um the stuff i try to present is stuff exactly like what you're saying that you can do it even if no one else on your crew wants to partake um you can find ways to shave seconds in, in different areas so it's really it really cool to hear that you guys are doing that. You actually reminded me of uh, uh, one of the first guys I talked to who does something similar to kind of the, that approach that you guys and your crew have is uh, Justin McWilliams, obviously a good, good friend of both of ours. Um, they have a, a little whiteboard next to their rig and um, it's a, a little bit of a, a board of shame, if you will. Not, that's not his term mine, but um the last guy to get on the rig gets his name put on the board, you know, and it's, and the guys all buy into it. It's all in good fun, but you don't want your name on that board. Right. So it, it just promotes that little bit of like little more hustle, little more hustle, little more hustle to not, not have your name on that board. And I, I, I like stuff like that. Right. Good competition is, is a good thing for us. So, um, so as far as what we can do, uh, things that you can institute almost immediately. So I look at, we lose time um, in four places. It's uh, our turnout time, like you were just talking about, our travel time, um, <clears throat> our tailboard time, and our task time. Like those are the four, four T's, if you will, that I kind of look at things. Because most of that stuff, um, you know, 90%, 95% of the time, that's all before we cross the threshold into the structure which is when variables really get thrown at us. Um, so the further I get away from the firehouse, the less control I have. So I, I want to control as much as I can. Obviously in the uh, kind of sterile environment of the firehouse, like you were talking about, we have a lot of control of how, how quickly we get out our door. And that's as simple as 
exactly what you were saying, what your process is, how you stage your gear at the rig um, so that you're, you're getting out the door quick. And if you're like my department, you get a report every month or every quarter that you know shows the department's turnout times, right? It's, it's important to the department because it's an NFPA standard. Hey, Ben, Travel, real, real quick. Yeah. Your turnout time, how's that measured? Is that, is that when your officer hits the button or is that when your rig moves? Because <laughs> uh, I know, I know. Yeah, exactly. I've heard, I hear different things from different guys. So the last I heard, and I believe was the clarification on it, is uh, ours is kind of based on um, GPS. So it's uh, once your rig is moving away, it's a certain distance from the station. I think it's like 100 or 200 feet. So it's not just when you hit that button, because that was right. That's always the you know, the trick is guys would run out there, hit that button and then start getting dressed. And now your turnout times look good, even though you might be slow. So I think ours are actually, um, are actually measured based on the rig moving away from the, the station. So they're, they're pretty legitimate. Um, so uh, travel time, travel time's a little harder to, to affect, but what that comes down to obviously is, is knowing your district um, as a driver and then, I think, and more importantly, my, my department puts a lot of emphasis on map tests, um, but uh, knowing your district, but more importantly, if you don't know where you're going, like, please ask, you know, don't check your ego. Um, don't say, I, oh, I think it's over here or whatever, because one missed turn for us can be, that means going all the way around a block potentially, right? That could be 30 seconds to a minute. It's a massive loss of time. Um, if someone's trapped, right? So uh, check the ego, ask for help if you don't know where you're going and make sure we get there right the first time. We have no shortage of resources or technology to uh, get us get us to the scene uh, in the shortest path possible. So um, that brings us to tailboard time, which is, all honesty was, was probably, um, introduced to me best from uh ryan royal uh with irons and ladders who who I'm, i've been fortunate enough to teach with over the years um at least that term anyway um so tailboard time is simply from the time the air brake is set to the time you're walking away from the rig with all your tools in hand for whatever your your assignment is and we can lose a significant amount of time there or we can you know buy it back and a lot of that has to do with uh rig spec you know which sometimes is over our head and we don't have a lot of control over but if you do um you know if you can get involved in your apparatus committees if you can get involved in equipment committees uh if your department makes those things available to you then don't just sit at the kitchen table or in the recliner and complain about the rigs you get on, get involved in those committees and, and try and have a voice in the, in the process and the product. So stuff as simple as um, from an apparatus standpoint, you know, the doors, I'm, I'm happen to be a big fan of roll up doors versus, uh, you know, swing out doors um, because they save, save time. And when people initially hear that, they're like, man, you're really splitting hairs. And, and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the point. You know, if I can save five seconds at every door I open, you know, that's, it's just part of uh, a larger approach that eventually leads up to saving a minute and a half or two minutes, right, which we're giving back to the victim. So um, door spec, 
um, how you, where you put your equipment on the rig. Do I have, if I get an assignment to go to the roof, do I have to go to three compartments to get all my equipment together to do that? Or is it stored kind of tactically where I can hit one roll up, grab my saw and my ax, and then grab a ladder and walk away, right? And shave off 20 seconds at the tailboard. Um, you know, if it's, we're talking hose work, do I, do I have a hose bed that's nine feet in the air or do I have one that's chest level, you know, that gets me away from the rig faster? Um, do I have lines that are set up to go long or do I have to build long lines? Um, if I've got a, a large setback or a courtyard type situation or a vertical stretch, you know, so all those things, the, the rig spec, where you stage your tools, um, gets us uh, away from the rig faster. And the beauty of tailboard time is you can, you can practice that without ever moving your rig, without, um, without anyone on your crew. If, if you got a crew that's not very motivated and, and you are, and uh, you're trying to figure out how to make a difference, it's simply coming off the rig and getting your tools together in as efficient uh, and fewest steps as possible. And you can, it takes about 30 seconds to a minute and then you reset them and you tweak something and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. Um, example is, is I, the squad at my station, which is basically a, like a rescue engine. Um, we have, uh, our ladders are stored very high up. It's a 24 and a 14. So they're single person throws, but they require two people to get them off. And um, so, you know, between myself and my engineer, you know, we have a very good plan for how we're going to get away from the rig for like a vertical vent package or an outside truck package. And, uh, but that only came from doing it over and over and over and tweaking things here and there. And we took our time from, you know, a minute 30 to 40 seconds, which is still really long, but given the way that truck is built, it's, it's kind of the world we live in. So uh, and then that brings you to task time. And obviously task time, we can, uh, you can go down to any number of directions depending on your task. Um, but everything is based on the idea. It's really this principle of scientific management, which has been around since uh, shortly after the industrial revolution. So none of this is new, but it's the idea of step reduction, right? It's the idea of getting faster, not simply by moving faster but by eliminating the number of steps that it takes to to uh, complete a process um, which is easy because it's quantitative it's easy to say oh that time took me you know 20 movements to get masked up say um, versus okay now i'm down to 12. and uh so you you talked about you brought up the mask up thing um and that's what i use as a uh, as kind of the hallmark example in this class is mask up time. Um, and the reason I use mask up is one, it's, it's very easy to demonstrate Two, it's very easy to practice on your own. Uh, and three, we have to do it uh, almost all the time when we go to a, a structure fire, regardless of assignment. So if I get faster at mask up, it means that I've gotten faster at search. I've gotten faster at fire attack. I've gotten faster at, vertical ventilation, I've gotten faster RIT because it's it's part of any one of those, those processes. So um, it's a really easy one to just go through the process of masking up, 
jot down, you know, the steps that you do to, to complete the process. And for a lot of people, it's going to be somewhere around, uh, you know, 15, 16 steps, and then just start eliminating steps and working through your process, come up with a better process. Um, and you'll see that you can get down to, you know, eight steps to do the exact same process. Uh, so without moving any faster, you'll find that you've, you know, you've dumped 20 or 30 seconds off of your mask up time, which is when we're talking about windows of survival of two minutes, 30 seconds is a significant amount of time. Um, and again, it's something that you don't need any special equipment. You don't need any help from your crew. You don't need a new SOP or anything like that to, to institute it. Um, and you're immediately making things better for yourself and, and for uh, potential victims on fire ground. Yeah, and we have the uh, sister podcast that that we do. Uh, it's called Grabs, and the biggest thing we've we've recorded about twenty five, and we try to bring firsthand stories of rescues to the listener. But the biggest takeaway I've gotten of that one is almost every time the the on scene to victim out is between two and four minutes. So. Ben, when you start talking about these things on shaving 30 seconds here or 20 seconds here, a minute here, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in, uh, in our heads when we do a 20 minute training evolution. But when we're talking these two to four minutes on real life rescues, that's huge. Yeah. The, and the numbers support that, you know, I, anyone that spends much, much time around me or talking with me about this stuff, uh, realizes pretty quick that I, I try not to open my mouth about anything that I haven't researched a bunch or uh, don't have data to back it up. And, and I get we're you know, we're kind of in this uh, world where we're having to find the, um, the middle ground between a laboratory study, you know, IE UL and this studies to, um, you know, anecdotal information that we see on the street. And then as we start to see those numbers, uh, blend and coincide, then we, I think that's when we know we're, we're really on the right track. And um, for instance, if you look at like the UL study on occupant survival, uh, you know, they, obviously those are, that's a very specific house layout and a, and a burn set. It's, it's very controlled. Um, but if you look at the victims that eventually reach some level of uh, lethality in terms of dose, whether that's due to heat or toxic gas, um, in a best case scenario, you know, the, the victim laying in the hall just outside the fire room had about eight minutes, but that's eight minutes from the time the fire started until uh, what they call LD50, until they reached a dose that would be lethal to 50% of, of the population. Um, but again, like I said, that's eight minutes from the time that the fire started. So we have to chip away at all that to really see where we impact it because we have to take out our response time. We have to take out that tailboard time, all that stuff. And what we really end up finding is that uh, from the time we cross the threshold till we get them out, you know, they, they really have like this two minute window until their survival is down to uh, a flip of a coin. Um, I'd like to give people certainly a, a much higher chance than that. Now, on the street side, when you 
when you compare that to firefighter rescue survey, and this will be my, my plug for firefighter rescue survey. If you're not, anyone that's listening to this show, um, if you're not familiar with that, please get on your computer as soon as you're done with this, type in firefighter rescue survey and, and get familiar with it. It is uh, probably one of the most important um, movements in, in the fire service that I, at least I've seen in, in my, my time, in my career, uh, and has the potential to have the greatest impact on, uh, on the public. Um, the amount of information that's available on there and the work these guys are doing, um, which is kind of driving what Grant just spoke to his crabs podcast. Uh, it's, it's just unbelievable. So if you look at their latest numbers, uh, Victims that were rescued in under two minutes had a 70% survival rate. Victims rescued between two and 10 minutes uh, kind of lived in like the upper 50s, 50% survival rate. Um, and over 10 minutes, it uh, drops down to 40% and then it drops off from there. So, you know, I think, I think we're starting to see this, this blend of, of the lab side and the street side and actually being able to put numbers to things and realize that um 30 seconds is a is a big big difference to victim outcomes and um the analogy i always use is is the swimming pool you know it is drowning um some of the worst calls i've been on for sure and uh if i if i went to if i taught a class on um um drowning prevention or, you know, EMS, you know, treatment of drowning victims or whatever. If I told the class right off the, the beginning and I told the chief of that department, EMS chief, hey, I'm going to give you a roadmap for how to get people out of the pool a minute and a half faster, you know, would do you think that would be pretty significant? And, uh, you know, the hands in class immediately go up or, or take it even more personal. You know, you, you know, I live in Florida. Uh, everyone has a pool here pretty much. You know, one of my biggest fears when my kids were really little was was them ending up in a pool without us around. So imagine walking out into your your back patio and your kids at the bottom of the pool. You know, would would you be comfortable just standing at the edge of the pool for 15 seconds, for 30 seconds, for a minute, minute and a half before you went and intervened? Absolutely not. Like, no way. You know, you would you do everything you could to be as fast as possible at getting them out of the water as fast as possible because that gives them their best chance. So why would we treat fire victims who predominantly die from smoke inhalation? Um, oxygen's not where it's supposed to be and other stuff is in its place, right? It's not very different from drowning. Why would we treat them any different? Why would we not give them the same, uh, the same attention? So um, yeah, I try, you know, try to back everything up with data and, um, and show that, that all of these little seconds uh, add up into in giving people a better, better chance. I'm not sure if you want to go there, but as you were describing that, and I sat in your class and saw the video, but now it just, uh, something new came to my head that if I saw my kids at the bottom of the pool, would I s jump in and, and save them immediately? Or would I take off my shoes, go get my bathing suit, make sure my cell phone's not in my pocket? It's kind of the equivalent of, do I want to come off the rig with an air pack or not? <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's the, the million dollar statement in my mind. Um, 
Yeah, I, uh, I'm not a fan. I've been pretty vocal about the fact that I'm not a fan of taking SCBAs out of the cab. Uh, I believe we should show up um, ready to work. Uh, notice I do not say I'm not a fan of clean cab. Uh, clean cab has gotten a really bad rap, and it's gotten beat up really bad. Uh, clean, just so people understand, clean cab is um, uh, an initiative that's made up of, of multiple changes to the way we, we built our rigs, right? So it, it consists of um, non-porous surfaces, getting wiring harnesses off the floor so that you can, you know, wash everything and not screw up your, your electrical systems. Uh, better air filtration, easier to replace air filters. You know, there's any number of things in there and they all make sense. They just, just from a cleanliness standpoint, not even whether you're talking cancer or COVID, it just makes sense to, to have a rig that's easier to clean, right? Um, and those are all able to be supported by data and by research. Unfortunately, somewhere in there, uh, someone lumped in this idea that, well, let's just pull the air packs out too. And um, it's it's one of those things that's, uh, I think, probably sounded good on paper. And certainly the intentions were good, you know, to protect uh, protect people in the fire service. Um, and I'm I certainly appreciate appreciate working anywhere that that. Uh, where the administration wants to take care of their people. Um, but in the real world just doesn't work very well. And it, uh, and it's not that I think that the biggest thing that bothers me is it's just not supported in any data. There's no research, there's no data that shows by removing air packs, um, we're gonna reduce cancer uh, by this percentage or anything like that. Um, if those numbers come out, then, then we revisit the conversation, right? I'm, I'm not a hypocrite about that. But uh, but there's there's nothing to support it. What is very easy to show through time trials and data is that it slows down our process, plain and simple. You can't add um, additional steps to what you're doing is prolonging your tailboard time. Um, you can't add additional steps to that process and not be slower, plain and simple. Um, you know what, when we did time trials, or when I, I should say I when I've done time trials with with some other individuals uh, and spoken to guys at other departments who have gone down that road. You know, we've seen anywhere from 15 to about 40 seconds of additional time in terms of getting an air pack on, depending on how it's stored and how your rig's laid out. Um, and that's in a sterile environment. That's in, a, that's in the station apparatus bay. It's not in, um, it's not in crappy weather. It's not in driving rain or heavy snow, freezing temps. It's not with traffic zipping past you. It's not with, uh, you know, the family yelling at you that their kid's inside. It's not with your officer <clears throat> giving you orders or changing orders. You know, all those things add to stress and, and take our focus away from the task. And we're already fairly task-saturated uh, pretty quickly with, with what we do anyway, uh, whether people want to admit it or not. Um, and it just, it's just going to make that time that, you know, was 15 seconds in the, in the apparatus bay is now going to be 20 seconds or 30 seconds, you know, it's just going to add to it. Um, and it's taking our focus away from doing a good size up and, and, 
getting the tools we need to complete the task and, and remove victims as fast as possible. So, um, you know, until someone can show me that, that uh, the research has been done and the data is there that, that says uh, this is the way we have to go, then um, I'll be pretty outspoken against it. Uh, the other side of that is there are lots of other ways to, to uh, achieve cleaner equipment, right? And I think we should take, I actually, I've actually been really proud of the fire service in a way, uh, uh, in my department in particular, in the way we've handled the whole COVID crisis. You know, my chief made it very clear early on um, that we're going to increase some protection measures for ourselves. But at the end of the day, uh, we're there to treat patients. We're there to take care of them and, and they come first. And um, if we would take that same mentality over to the, the fire side of things, um, we, we probably wouldn't be having uh, air pack discussions. So, um, you know, with COVID, it's been increase in PPE, right? Wear your PPE. And then it's been uh, additional decon, at least at, at my department. It seems like a lot of departments. Uh, my rigs are probably the cleanest they've ever been since, <laughs> since I've worked, worked there because of COVID and, and the, um, the need to decon and clean things as, as well as we do. If we take that same mentality over to the, the fire side of things, wear your gear, stay on air through, uh, through overhaul. We can't rely, it's been proven, we can't rely on a three or four gas meter to now say, hey, the air, the air is clean, you guys don't need to be on air. Um, wear your gear through overhaul, do your gross decon uh, on scene, and then get into clean gear. And I know for other, for lots of departments, that's, that's an issue. Um, but if that's available to you, um, then that's, uh, that's a route to get into clean gear and get yourself showered as fast as possible. So uh, there's all kinds of, there's new equipment, right? I mean, whether we're looking at air packs that can be um, you know, the shoulder straps and the, the waist belt can be removed and thrown in the extractor um, or uh, air packs that are being built with non-porous materials now. Um, parts washes, decon parts washers that you can actually put your whole air pack into and just have it basically like an extractor for, for your hard goods. Um, I mean, we just have so many more avenues that we can achieve a cleaner work environment and not negatively impact our operations and, and what we do for the public. So um, you're right. I would never pause at the edge of the pool to do those things. So why would I do it when I, when I show up to the house that's on fire? And clearly I don't want people saying, Oh, Ben and Grant uh, are pro cancer. That's not it. It's just uh, let's do our job. Let's be prepared as we hop off the rig and then let's do our due diligence afterwards, clean ourselves up, clean our equipment up. And when we're driving around to the store and all our medical calls, uh, we're not, sitting on dirty gear and whatnot. Yeah. We we do it on I the am, EMS side. We'd never we'd never run a cardiac arrest and leave all of our stuff dirty. <laughs> right. So Yeah, I and and you're right. I and unfortunately again I think that that goes back to that kind of the divided, polarized <clears throat> state of times is that, you know, if you're you get these some of these arguments on on, you know, obviously Facebook threads and things like that of like, you know, if if you want the air packs in the cab, then you're pro cancer. Like no one's pro cancer, right? No one's, I'm not, no one's telling anyone to go out and eat charcoal briquettes for snacks. Like um, it's, 
you know, I, I don't know anyone who hasn't been affected by cancer, right? I've lost friends uh, on the, in the fire service and friends and family um, in the fire service and outside the fire service, uh, young and old. Um, I, I don't know anyone that hasn't been touched by it because 40% of the U.S. population, get, you know, that's, that's the numbers. Those are the facts. 40% of the U.S. population um, gets affected by it. So, yeah, I don't know how you get through life without either you yourself or, or knowing someone that that's had it. So uh, I think we all have the same, same goal. It's, it's obviously cancer reduction, and hopefully one day elimination in our lifetime, but maybe not. Um, but uh, just trying to get there via a different avenue. I just, um, I don't think departments, it's, it's not fair for departments to have these mission statements that the public comes first and we're here for them and all that stuff. And then not, not back it up with, with actions that reflect those. Um, so anyway, whatever, that's my, my stance on it, my soapbox on it. Let's, let's gear back on to the task level. Um, some people may have a little more pull within their departments and, and writing SOGs, fire ground, pre-arrival assignments. You talk a little bit, if you've got the ability, what, what your uh, pre-arrival should look like with assignments and stuff and tool assignments and stuff like that. Yeah. I love, I love pre-arrival stuff. And uh, for the most part, I would say like my department um, for the most part operates that way. West Metro um, kind of did. Uh, I think it's actually, it's interesting. I, so West Metro and, and West Palm both have, um, uh, we do ALS transport and we have firefighters on there. You know, we have all our equipment. So we, we send two, uh, two medic units to, um, to every fire. And those are, so they're kind of a wild card. I think it's really, I actually think it's much easier to have pre-arrival and assignments and all that stuff. If you're, uh, you know, a, a strictly a fire-based department, uh, especially if you run a, a pretty strict engine truck model, um, ours is a little more, uh, you know, nebulous. So, um, so there's some, some leeway in there, but I, what I like about pre-arrivals is, uh, their plan A and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of plan A, right? Like there's, I, you know, kind of the analogy or the point I make in class is there's not a, there's not a quarterback in the country that steps to the line of scrimmage from peewee to, to the NFL, um, who doesn't have, uh, a get, you know, doesn't have a play in mind. Um, it doesn't mean you can't audible, right? You can look at the defense, not like what you see and then audible. That's okay. You don't have to be locked into it. And so what I like about pre-arrivals is, um, you have that plan A and when things are kind of lining up, uh, in favor of it, then everyone knows what needs to happen, what they need to grab, what assignments they're going to do. Uh, it, it, greatly reduces uh, communications, which not only saves time, but reduces um, uh, introduction of error as well. So, but just understand that you can be fluid with it. You can, you can audible, and that's something else that you need to train on, right? Um, I know like Paul, you know, Paulie Capo, and, and when you were teaching with him, uh, what's the acronym? You guys use PACE, right? Primary, that's alternative, right. contingent, and emergent plans. Right. So, um, you know, 
it's it's the same thing whether you're talking about how you plan to do a window lift with a victim or how you uh, how you dole out your your assignments on your first uh, um, on your first alarm. So I know I listened to Paulie's uh, Grabs podcast, which was awesome, and and he talked about you know they they had some variables thrown at them with that that victim for sure, um, but he had a plan. Uh, with how they were going to do the lift, and and if it wasn't going to work, he knew exactly um, the next step he was going to move towards, and that's a tremendous amount of time savings. Instead of the uh, let's get there and see what we have, it's it is. There are a few statements that uh, that's <laughs> that like suck the life out of me as fast as um, we'll figure it out when we get there, and. Uh, you know, if I rove around to another station or, or we've got a, an officer roved in and, and I'm having a quick discussion with him, hey, you know, Cap, if we get a fire, um, you know, what do you want for this? You know, something real basic. And, and you get the answer of, you know, there's too many variables, there's too many scenarios, we'll figure it out when we get there. What I just heard was you have, you have zero plan and we're going to make it up when we get there. And I, my experience, maybe everyone has different experiences, but my experience is those usually don't go very well. Um, and they're certainly slower. So uh, yeah, pre-arrival, tool assignments. Um, again, anything, uh, not only tool assignments, but where you store them, how, how you, the order that you get them off the rig. Um, all stuff that can be trained before those calls come in, they can be trained in the station. Uh, all of it adds up. It all adds up. If we, again, if we look at all you have to do is look at, you know, can I save 10 seconds in my turnout time? Um, can I assure that we get uh, uh, to the call as quickly as possible so I don't lose time during travel? Uh, can I shave 10 to 20 seconds on my tailboard time? And can I shave, you know, 30 seconds off my mask up time and how I force the door? All of a sudden, you know, each one of those things individually, it's easy for people to go, yeah, it's 10 seconds, who cares? But, um, but aggregate, you know, you just, you just saved yourself about a minute, not only yourself, but the victim. So, um, anywhere we can shave that time. And, uh, that's a really long answer for, yes, I like pre-arrivals and tool assignments. <laughs> I want to change directions, uh, as we begin to wrap up and something that I was Something that really got me thinking was you made the move from West Metro to West Palm. How how long had you had on the job when you made that move? Um, I had a, a couple of years in California and then 11 years at West Metro. So, uh, yeah, 13 years about. So you knew what was going on. You were already on the teaching circuit with, with just some outstanding people. And anybody that hasn't met Ben yet, there's not too many people. Uh, that come to, I think, his level of fireground performance and intelligence before the incident. Uh, that's something I respect about you a ton. But something I noticed in your first year at West Palm, you were studying your butt off on all mm -hmm. sorts of stuff. So can you talk a little bit about, number one, what it's like to move from one department to another, but the importance that uh, we need to put in that first year, no matter how good somebody is when they come in uh, and setting them, setting them up in that first year. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So <clears throat> which the timing is pretty good. We have, we have a new guy right now at our station. Um, so we can kind of talk about that as far as the move, uh, 
my move was not um, career related at all. We moved for, uh, well, one, I had never lived away from the ocean until I moved to Colorado. And uh, I love the mountains and took full advantage of them and rock climb and ice climb and ski and snowboard and all that mountain bike. And uh, But every day I, I miss the water. So uh, I'm happiest when I'm in the water. So, um, so I miss the water and uh, mine and my wife's families live here in Florida. And we had, you know, two younger kids and they were missing out on a lot of stuff uh, as far as family and, and holidays and things like that. So that was important to uh, to get them back around their families. So that's that's kind of how we ended up down here. Um, I was pretty picky about where I was going to test. Uh, I looked at a lot of departments and um, I was only going to test for West Palm and for Fort Lauderdale and uh, ended up at, at uh, West Palm. Um, Starting over was uh, a challenge. Uh, in a lot, it's some some a lot of it I expected, some I didn't. Um, recruit class was uh, I actually for the most part I enjoyed recruit class just because I like training and uh, so it was it was fun to go through recruit class. Uh, it was June, July, and August in Florida, South Florida, <laughs> so. Uh, there were a few days where I was uh, just completely uh, worn out, and I'm 42 now, so it's a little different from when I was in my 20s. But, um, but in general, that you know, recruit class was pretty good. Uh, the first year, it was it was back to being a new guy. Keep your mouth shut for the most part. Listen, take in everything you can, learn about the department, and um, uh, I was really fortunate to end up at a good station. Uh, I've had a uh, good captain since I've been here and lieutenants. And um, they, I'll say this, I tried really hard not to do the, well, I used to do this, or we used to do that thing. Uh, at the same time, um, when people would open that door and ask an opinion, um, then I, I wasn't shy about sharing, you know, what I had seen work. Um, whether it was at West Metro or or through the the years of of teaching with other guys and things I learned from other guys. So how do you do that um, respectfully? <laughs> uh, I don't know. You, <laughs> I don't know that I did. Maybe you'd, you'd probably have to ask the officers. And, <laughs> um, I, I again, it's it's knowing your. I think a huge part of it's knowing your audience. There's some people I just didn't have. I I wouldn't have that discussion with. Um, but. Uh, my captain right now is uh, is outstanding in terms of of being able to have open conversations with him, um, and even if they get heated, uh, there he's you move on from it because we have the same goal. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, we don't have a bunch of heated conversations, but um, they're ones that we can have and then move on to it because. Uh, we have the same goal and he has a very simple, he has the same mindset, you know, search is the most important thing we do and uh, everything else is kind of in, in support of that. And so it's great when we can have the same mission and the same goal because it's, we're always working towards the same thing. Um, the, the captain I had previously to that, uh, just, uh, just the example, he's, he's, he's a shining example of, of, um, a guy that cares about coming to work and doing the job right and uh, giving the public their best chance and you come into work to work and um, 
not to rest. And uh, so we connected on a lot of levels and uh, had a lot of good conversations. So they, they as an audience, made it really easy for me to have those discussions. I, I, I've been really lucky in, in that sense. Um, sometimes it's uh, I have an audience that um, those, those same conversations either can't happen or they're going to be a little bit ugly. So for me, <laughs> um, at the end of the day, it's uh, I, I really care, and I, especially as I've gotten older, I mean, what matters to me is that when I come home, um, my wife and my kids uh, respect the way I approach what I do, and that guys like you and Brush and um, the guys from Brothers in Battle and the guys from Irons and Ladders and, and um, Gary Lane and his group and the guys who I'm really close with around the country who I really respect who are, are close friends and mentors when I have conversations with them and they say yeah you're on the right page then I feel pretty good about it and if I ruffle feathers along the way um, it's not my intention it really isn't I'm, I'm not a guy that likes a lot of conflict um, but if it's for the right reasons if it's for the the mission of the the department um, then I then I'm pretty much okay with whatever the fallout is. So, um, so yeah, I don't know that I always do that the right way, but that's kind of my mentality towards it. Um, I love what you said that if you can agree on shared goals, because those are hard to debate. If you're here for the right reasons, we're right. there about saving lives and property and doing it in the most efficient manner. We can debate what the most efficient manner is, but it, it seems like if we agree on those shared goals, egos go down a little bit and we're just all trying to find the same solution. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's common ground. It's all about finding common ground. And, and if your common ground is the mission of the department, it's really hard to, to argue with um, finding the, you know, the best practice. So, and again, I, this is part of where the time stuff comes in for me. I'm a huge proponent of the stopwatch. Um, I don't like to sit at the kitchen table and say, well, I think this is better. I think this is better. Like, let's, let's go out on the, on the drill ground or on the pad or go find an acquired or whatever and go and go do it. And if you show me that you're, you know, your process is 20 seconds faster, what it like, you're going to, you're probably going to sell me. It's not everything. Like time's not everything. Weight is not everything. I talk a lot about weight in class, but they have to be, they absolutely have to be part of the conversation. And so um, I use that a lot uh, in a discussions I have. I'm like, let's, you know, whether it's a, a hose load or a vertical ventilation technique or laddering technique or whatever, um, put the, put the stopwatch to it. And, uh, you, usually you'll end up finding the best practice, but, um, the, as far as the first year stuff, yeah, I, I studied a lot. Um, everyone, this, the department definitely gives you a lot to, uh, to learn and study in its first year. Um, I, I mentioned earlier the emphasis they put on maps, um, that I kind of struggle with. We, uh, I would say 70% of my first year was, was spent studying maps, um, which I, I don't necessarily agree with. It's tradition here. Uh, I absolutely agree with learning your city and learning your district. Um, 
and learning your major arteries and all that stuff through the city. Um, but I, but I would, I, you know, personally, I would rather see more, um, <clears throat> more focus put into the, the knowledge of the job, uh, just because maps at this point, I get it. You know, when I, when I first came on that we, we didn't have, you didn't have a smartphone, you didn't have MDTs, um, everything was a map book. And so I, you know, I get that. I definitely get that. And we still have our map books in the rig, but, um, at this point, when a call comes in, you know, you got, you got, someone's got, well, all of us pretty much have the pulse point app, you know, so it pops up on everyone's phone. Um, someone can get on Google maps. You have your MDT, you have your map books, like you have multiple ways of, of making sure you get there, uh, as efficiently as possible. What I don't have is apps and pulse point and MDTs for throwing ladders and for VES and for stretching lines and uh, understanding how standpipes work and PRVs and PRDs. And I like that stuff doesn't exist. So those things are only learned through getting your nose in the books and then putting your hands on the equipment. And uh, so I would kind of rather see a, a greater focus on that especially in that first year. I mean, I, I think there's only a couple times in a career where a department has uh, its employees undivided attention. And one of them is uh, certainly during your first year. Um, the other times are probably when they're, when they're studying for promotional tests. So in that first year, I mean, they are, they're a sponge, you know, they're, you know, when do, when do, uh, when do our children or babies learn, uh, the most when do they have the biggest you know kind of brain uh, brain growth um it's it's in those first formative years and so um they will do the, those those new hires will do pretty much anything you say uh when you say it and um so if your if your department doesn't put a big focus on the the training in that first year like you've really lost um you've really lost the ability to build a good foundation. So we have a new guy right now who, who went through kind of an unorthodox uh, recruit academy um, with us or recruit class. And so uh, we're doing a lot of training with him and he's, he's doing great picking things up and um, the training division put together a good, uh, you know, kind of a good guide and roadmap for his first year. And we stick to that and, um, and then he hits the books. So, but yeah, don't for departments that are you know kind of pencil whip a bunch of stuff. I think they really don't realize that um, in ten years when they're when they're that department's pissed off that they have bad officers, um, they you know they kind of started that process when they pissed away their first year. So uh, take full advantage of that first year with your guys. Yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for the conversation that we had. And I don't remember when it, when it was, but you said just exactly that. You've got a few times in uh, anyone's career where they're actually going to study, and that's probation because they want to keep their job or they want to get promoted. Whatever the reason they want to get promoted, they will study whatever you put them in front of. For a lot of years, we took that too light. We didn't, uh, we didn't train our probies to the best of our abilities. And likewise, we, we tested on books that weren't 
appropriate for Florida. You know, it's how right. are you going to draft uh, when you've got ice on a pond? <laughs> right. Really, yeah. that's the stuff we're having our guys read or, and they're great books, but you know, it's out of a, a battalion chief from New Jersey or California uh, that doesn't have yeah. some bearing. So after conversations with you, we really uh, tried to put together a manual that was specific for our department with our equipment, memorizing the tools we carried um, and, you know, taking the best of what's out there. It's so hard right now because any firefighter can get online and find any information they want. Now, whether that's what your department wants them to, uh, we use modified modified Minutemans, um, so we really try to stick with that nozzle forward program. So guess what? We got with Aaron Fields, we got some information, and just yesterday we were testing our new guys. Give us three ways to hold a nozzle and three ways to move from that position. If yep. they can learn that in their first year, my gosh, how good are they going to be down the line? Um, so if anybody wants that information, um, it's – I, we put it together, um, but just email me, grantschwalbe at gmail.com. I'm happy to share everything because everything's been shared with me. Change the pictures, do whatever you want, make it yours. But for Pete's sake, man, use that opportunity when people are promoting or on probation to give them and let them memorize everything that, that they should, uh, that's going to help them throughout their career. Yeah, one, and you brought up a great point um, about the whole uh, online uh, you know, access to information. So <clears throat> it, it really is a, a double-edged sword. It's, um, you know, I, th- I think back to when, obviously when you started, which is a few years, you know, years before me and then back to me, but all I had as a resource for the most part was like IFSTA essentials and, you know, whatever books you found somewhere else. Um, nowadays, if I've got uh, a standpipe question, I hop into one of my little Facebook chats and, and I talk to the, the most knowledgeable guys in the country. And I usually have a, an answer in a few seconds. Um, so that the amount of information that's available to people is unbelievable. It also means the amount of information that you have to wade through um, is unbelievable. And it's so departments need to understand uh, particularly with uh, this generation who's so used to gaining immediate answers via smartphone, that if you don't provide them uh, with a clear path and direction of what you want them to learn, they're going to go find it on their own. And uh, so, you know, it's the why generation. And that's a good, like, to me, that's a good thing. I love why. I think uh, certainly as an instructor, um, I should not be teaching something to somebody unless I can, if the first question out of their mouth is like, well, why would I do this? It's my answer should never be because I told you so, or because I told you it's better. I should have an, you know, an answer that I can articulate to them and, and back up. Um, So this generation really, they want that. Why? And it's not, it's not a question. Uh, the why is not questioning authority. It's it's a, a thirst for knowledge, and we're we're pissing away that opportunity with them if we don't give them that knowledge. Because if if we say because I told you so, then they're going to go out and find the why on their own, and they might they might find something that's not very good. Um. So 
yeah, harness that, like, I can't say it enough, harness that first year. And it's not just do A, B, and C. It's do A, B, and C and understand why you're doing them um, and guide that because otherwise they'll, they'll do it on their own. And it's that, that's how you end up with really faction departments, you know, so. I think a perfect example of that, um, especially here in Florida, is uh, when you get into the state pump operator and what the state says your coefficient is going to be for inch and three-quarter hose. And you're, a, you're an engine guy and know that coefficient is going right. to vary with your, with your type of hose. So if the state says it's 15.5 and you're using key hose and it says it's 6.5, and then you got right. the hand method and all these other things and everybody asks you why and you don't have an answer, or your department yeah. hasn't come out and specifically said, these are our pump discharge pressures and the why and how we got there. Yeah. Right. We're going to lose this Y generation. And they're just going to chalk us up as a bunch of idiots. Yeah. And, and, uh, which is, is a shame. They have, they have the ability, um, to, to be one of the, I, my opinion, they have this generation, this younger generation of firefighters has the ability to be, uh, one of the most, knowledgeable generations in, in the history of the fire service um, because the amount of information and printed information that's available to them. Um, their job, once they get the job, is to gain the experience and the hands-on techniques. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a real shame, I think, if we don't, we don't harness that, that drive uh, that seems to be inherent in them to, to want to know the reasons for why we do what we do. So. Well, Ben, as always, I appreciate our conversations that we get to have, and I'm glad to be able to share that with the, uh, the listeners on the Journeyman Fire podcast today. If people want to get a hold of you to get more information, to have you come out and teach every second counts, or uh, whatever, to talk surfing, how would they get a hold of you? <laughs> um, I'm, on, I'm on Facebook. You can get to me on, on Facebook. That's pretty easy, and I'm good about answering stuff. Um, also, through the Fire by Trade uh, Facebook page. Um, you can shoot me a message on there or, um, yeah, those are really, those are the easiest ones. Um, I, the one thing I just want to add one thing and it's because I think it really, uh, if there's anything you take away from this whole, you know, from this, whatever, how many minutes we've been talking or hours, um, and from my class, it's something I'm adding into my class. And I, I give, um, brush all the credit for bringing this piece of information uh, to my attention um, during his class at the uh, Water on the Fire conference last year in Pensacola. We are, and this is straight from NFPA, this came out in 2019. So for a victim, in the, uh, for an individual caught in a fire in the U.S. today, uh, their likelihood of survival is no better than it was 40 years ago. And I, I mean, take a second and let that sink in. You know, that's Brian just did a podcast on this um, when we were doing all these kind of COVID podcasts um, and, and, and talks much more in depth about it. But that's to me, that is such a, a punch in the gut and a, a a failure, you know, uh, why, why the public isn't better off today, uh, than they were 40 years ago when they're caught in a house fire. Um, really, we really need to pause and we need to look at what we're doing. And, um, 
you know, fire deaths are down, but that's because uh, the number of fires are down. Um, our rate per thousand is is basically what it was. So that means prevention's doing a good job, public education's doing a good job, sprinklers are are doing a good job, those types of of things. Um, but what we do when we show up, apparently. Uh, at least statistically, has not made things much better. And if we're talking about, if you want to look at it from like a business standpoint, um, think about the amount of the technology that's uh, gone into our our our, uh, our job, um, the equipment we used, our bunker gear, our SCBAs. Think about all the advances that have happened in those forty years. It's it's staggering. It's uh, they're two totally different entities. And yet somehow um, the public doesn't seem to be benefiting from it. So, you know, like from a, a return on investment standpoint, that's pretty piss poor. Um, we don't have a lot of things that, that we can that we can manage, uh, but we can absolutely through training, um, the equipment we purchase, how we put it on the rigs, how it comes off the rigs, we can we can have a big impact on the amount of time people are, are caught in burning buildings. Um, and that's been shown. Time and exposure are absolutely um, data-driven, shown to be a key factor in, in survival rates. So um, keep that in mind. If, if, you, if you think seconds don't count, five seconds here and mask up doesn't count and a, a hose stretch that's 10 seconds faster, keep in mind the fact that uh, are we have flatlined in terms of success for 40 years. So it's time for us to start moving in a better direction and uh, controlling the things we can control and do a better job of it. Nice. Well, Ben, I appreciate you taking time to, uh, to come on and share everything. And um, I don't know. I think that's about it then. You got anything else? No. I'm, uh, thank you for having me on here. It's uh, Hopefully it didn't come across as gibberish and people get something out of it i know i don't even know if people listen to these things but whatever we'll keep doing them (laughs) yeah we got to have fun (laughs) whatever (laughs) it's good in these in these times to at least see your uh see your face and get some some personal interaction so i appreciate the time and uh i look forward to uh teaching with you again real soon and and uh all the other guys in in our crew all right thanks ben